If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, as we continue on in 1 Corinthians here, you'll notice the title of the message today is Genuine Church. Why are you meeting together? And uh, Paul goes directly um, to them again and uh, speaks to them. And uh, we have God's Word before us there in those verses that were read today. And so as we look at these points, um, we will note um, some of the some of it will be the, the culture of what the church was as it began and some of the things that they did a little different than we did that Paul talks about. But Paul hits the main course of things again and tries to get the focus back to the true aspect of what what God wants. And so if we start there at verse 17, the scripture has been read and we look at it again. And the first point I want to make is the genuine message that Paul points to in verses 17 through 22. And he asks a question of them, really. Um, They're getting together. He says, but in the following instructions, I don't commend you because you come together. It's not for the better, but for the worse. Um, In the message, a paraphrase on this Uh, Eugene Peterson put it this way. He said, regarding this next item, I'm not at all pleased. I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. And it's laid out very straightforward. Paul just kind of nails them right away, and he asks that question. You're getting together, but it appears that when you get together, it's not for good. (laughs) The, the, The bad stuff shows up. There's a museum in Greenfield Village, um, Detroit, um, Michigan, uh, it's a huge steam locomotive. And, and beside this complicated piece of machinery it, it is a sign showing the boiler pressure, the size and the number of wheels, the horsepower, the lengths, the weight, and more. And the bottom line indicates that 96% of the power generated was used to move the locomotive. And only 4% was left to pull the load. (laughs) Now, some churches are like that. (laughs) 96% is just to pull the locomotive rather than to move the load. (laughs) And as we look at things here, Paul next goes on in verse 18 and he says, There are divisions among you. And that's the word he uses. First of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I partly believe it. The word that gets used there is the word schismata. I'm not trying to say that to just get the Greek for you, but you get that word schism from that. What it means is literally the cliques that are part of things. And Paul knows here that there's something that's been accused of them. And he says, I I, I partly believe it. Paul knows better. He knows that anytime there's accusations about something or he hears something about something he checks into and there's some truth behind it good or bad in that regard but he hears that and he mentions that idea that there's some there's some some schism between them there's some divisions that are happening on and uh, i heard somebody put it this way one time they said there are four main bones in every organization the wish bones the people that wish somebody would do something about the problem. The jaw bones, those that do all the talking but very little else. And the knuckle bones, 
those who knock everything, and then the backbones, those who carry the brunt of the load and do most of the work. And Paul goes on then to verse 19 because he he breaks into it a little farther and he says, for there must be factions among you. And he does use a different word here. This is a stronger word. It refers to those who have differing opinions or differing doctrines. And so we could be talking here about actual heresies, actual divisions and factions that are interrupting the congregation. You know, it's kind of interesting as we look at that and we look at what can happen. He says there in verse 19, as he's talked about these factions, he says, these factions are among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. The divine purpose sometimes in going through some of these doctrinal differences or these actual heresies is to show the truth or to prove the church genuine. Because when evil, evil factions separate themselves from a congregation, it helps show what the true faction is or the true truth of God's word is. It can show that true purpose. And it makes Jesus evident in the end. And here's a truth that will come along as, as something like that. If somebody's doing something that's that's totally off balance that way, that's not according to God's word, the evil will always make a mistake and show its ugly head for what it is. And in the end, it will, it will even though the process may be ugly and hurtful. So what Paul brings up is what he sees and he hears about. He brings up the Lord's Supper and what's going on from what he's heard. To them, the Lord's Supper had become merely a meal with a lot of inconsistencies. And so he says there, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you, hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Now, before I go any farther, just understand what they did in the early church is they had a love meal, an agape meal, um, at the end of a church service or however that would work, and at the end of the agape meal, they would have the communion meal. And so what began to happen is it began to mix itself together. And, and it began to be a part of people would bring food, and some people couldn't bring as much food, and it became a part of division because it became clicks that some people could, some people couldn't bring as much and it began to show itself, and it even got worse than that as we read as it goes along. And again, I, I guess I just like, it, it's kind of nice to read it um, from the, from the uh, message again. I, I like the way Eugene Peterson kind of put it as a commentary to it. He said this way, he says, And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out, some go home hungry, others have to be carried out too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat in and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. 
you remember ever putting your face in um, one of those headless frames that are painted in? Type of thing. Um, there's an example up on the screen, and maybe you've done it with all sorts of different things. They do with dinosaurs, all the different um, things that way. Um, uh, many of us have had our pictures that taken that way. And, and the photos can be very humorous at times because the head doesn't fit the body. <laughs> That's what it's meant to kind of do. If we could picture Christ as the head of our local body of believers, what would the world see? Would they see the misfit look? Like we're putting our head through a uh, hole and things that way. Or would they stand in awe of a human body so closely related to the divine head? <laughs> So Paul goes on, and he says very simply here, I can't praise this action. I can't praise what you're doing. You are despising the church. You are despising the congregation of God. I came across a little anonymous uh, writing of the hymn Onward Christian Soldiers, but turning instead of onward Christian soldiers to backward Christian soldiers. Listen to the words of it. They wrote down, they put it this way, they put backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight. Christ our rightful master stands against the foe. Onward into battle we seem afraid to go. Backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight is the chorus The second verse, like a mighty tortoise moves the church of God. Brothers, we are treading where we've often trod. We are much divided, many bodies we, having different doctrines, but not much charity. Crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane, but the cross of Jesus hidden does remain. Gates of hell should never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, but we think it might fail. In the final verse they wrote, Sit here then, ye people, join join our sleeping throng. Blend with ours your voices in a feeble song. Blessings, ease, and comfort asked from Christ the King. But with our modern thinking, we won't do a thing. Sobering words, aren't they? But perhaps that's what's happening at times. And Paul is pointing that out to them. And he wants to get that focus back. And he gives them then a genuine reminder. He wants to get the focus back on what they should have been doing. And he uses the Lord's Supper and points that out. Paul's concern here is for the sacrament. Because if they correct what they're doing in the sacrament, then the agape meal will be corrected as well. Paul says there in verse 23, For I have received the Lord that which I have delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. He brings up that sacrament. Now you remember what a sacrament is. A sacrament is a holy ordinance made by God himself. To make something a sacrament, it has to be given by God, given by Jesus Christ. And it has a, it gives and it confers God's invisible grace and uses a visible means to show that as well. God's word has to be connected to it 
Because God is the one who gave it. Jesus gave it. But it needs to have that visible means that gives his invisible grace. And we could do the confirmation thing here. What are the two sacraments? In Scripture, it's the Lord's Supper and baptism. And we know the primary means of grace has to be a part of it. God's word to make it fully there. But the key here and what Paul is bringing out, it's from the Lord Jesus. From the Lord Jesus. He emphasized that. He's regaining that focus. He's pointing them back again. And he says, I pass on to you what I've received. And then in verse 24, he goes into the words of institution. The very facts, the very things Jesus said. This is my body. This is my blood. The blood is the new covenant. And he goes into that. This is. It's not merely symbolic. He points them to that important aspect. This is. The cup is the new covenant in my blood. And then he takes it in verse 26. As he's done verse 24 and verse 25 with those words of institution. He takes it to the remembrance part at the end of that. Whenever you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. And then verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He brings out the seriousness of what they're doing. They're proclaiming what Christ has done until he comes again. We don't know the day or the hour when he's going to come back because then we get to eat that meal with him in that full aspect of things. But Paul brings them back to the seriousness of what they're doing. And then he gives them some genuine instruction to how this is to be done. In verse 28, as he does this, he says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. To examine ourselves. By the way, did you know in our ambassador hymnal in the back of it, There's a whole set of questions you can ask yourself before coming up for the Lord's Supper. To just examine ourselves, to look at our own lives. And by the way, when we look at our own lives, what are we going to see? When we look inward, we see our sin. We see our need. We see that we need the grace of God. And we are to repent of that sin and to confess that sin and to come in that way. Because the the Lord's Supper is pure gospel for those that have looked at themselves. And by the way, it's one of the reasons why we wait with communion till after confirmation age. Is that so young people know what they're, they're, they're doing when they come forward. Because now comes some of the things about how if you eat this irreverently and you drink this in an unworthy manner, he says there, and he, by the way, when it's talking about that unworthy manner, it's referring up to the drying up of weights, the unequalness of the weights. <laughs> An unworthy manner means that we haven't looked at ourselves and we're, we don't see that difference. And we need the righteousness of Christ. The communicant's heart and mind and conduct don't line up with the sacred elements of the sacrament. And we're guilty of that body and blood. So we need to test ourselves. We need to look to Christ and to come as broken sinners and look for the grace of God and what God can give. 
Because first the heart needs that change. And then the conduct follows afterwards. Look at verse 29, Paul, in 29 and 30, Paul says, For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord and eats and drinks judgment on himself. To recognize that we're receiving the true body and blood, the real presence of Jesus. And then he says, that's why many among you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep, died. As I read that, I was reminded of a story. Um, it's a story about a, a pastor by the name of Pat Novak. He's a, by the way, he comes from a denomination that is non-sacramental, that would not see the Lord's Supper as a sacrament. <laughs> and he discovered this when a, um, he was serving as a hospital chaplain intern just outside of Boston several years ago. Pat Novak was making his rounds one summer morning when he was called to visit a patient that had been un- admitted with an undiagnosed ailment. The man's name was John. He was a man in his 60s. He had not responded to any treatment they gave him. Medical tests showed no... Nothing was wrong with him. Psychological tests were inconclusive, yet he was wasting away. He, he had not even been able to swallow for two weeks. The nurses tried everything, so finally they called the chaplain's office. And when Pat walked into the room, John was sitting limply in his bed, strung with IV tubes, staring listlessly at the wall. He was a tall man, grandfatherly looking, bald a little bit, but his sallow skin hung loosely on his face and his neck and arms where the weight had dropped from his frame. And his eyes were hollow and Pat was terrified. He had no idea when he walked in what to do. But John seemed to brighten a bit as soon as he saw Pat's chaplain badge and he invited him to sit down. And as they talked, Pat sensed that God was urging him to do something specific. He knew he was to ask John if he wanted to take communion. Now, chaplain interns were not encouraged to ask that type of thing in a public hospital. But Pat did. At that, John broke down. He said, I can't. I've sinned and I can't be forgiven. Pat paused a moment, knowing he was about to break policy again, but then he told John about 1 Corinthians 11 and Paul's admonition that whoever takes communion in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself. And he asked John if he wanted to confess his sin, and John nodded gratefully. To this day, Pat can't remember the particular sin that, that uh, John confessed, nor would he say if he did anyway. <laughs> but he recalls that it did not strike him as particularly egregious. Yet it had been draining the life from this man. John wept as he confessed. And Pat laid hands on him, hugged him, and told John his sins were forgiven. And then Pat got the second urging from the Holy Spirit to ask him if he wanted to take communion. And John said, yes, I do. And Pat gave John a Bible, told him he'd be back later. And already John was sitting up straighter with a flicker of light in his eyes. Pat visited a few more patients, then ate some lunch in the hospital cafeteria. When he left, he wrapped up a piece of bread and a napkin, borrowed a coffee cup from the cafeteria. He ran out to a shop a few blocks away and bought a container of grape juice. And then he returned to John's room with the elements and they celebrated communion together, reciting again 1 Corinthians 11 in the words of institution. John took the bread and chewed it slowly, 
It was the first time in weeks he had been able to take solid food in his mouth. He took the cup and swallowed. He'd been set free. And within three days, John walked out of that hospital. The nurses were so amazed that they called the newspaper, which later featured the story of John and Pat appropriately in its life section. Now, it's not the magical power of things that way. It's the true power of God's body and blood. What Christ did on the cross. He didn't pay for us with things like silver or gold. With the blood of a precious lamb. Paul's bringing the focus back. God is having Paul bring the focus back. And he continues with the genuine instruction there. When you look at verses 31 and 32, Paul says, if we judge ourselves, we would not come under judgment. But when the Lord judges us, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. The Lord's discipline Did you notice throughout all of this, Paul's been talking to them. But do you notice there in verse 31, he uses the word we. We. He includes himself. To face face the facts. We can't, we aren't good at judging ourselves. Think what would happen if the Lord left us to our own devices. We'd be in, we're in major trouble anyway, but we'd be worse off than we are. But Paul doesn't leave him there. And by the way, in the book of Proverbs, we see it again and again, as you see up on the screen, for the Lord corrects those he loves, just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. I like Jerry Bridges' quote as well. He says, the purpose of God's discipline is not to punish us, but it's to transform us. It's for good. And so Paul gives then some final instructions in verses 33 and 34. He says there basically, he says, wait your turn. Instead of coming and eating this meal and being trying to show up who is this and whatever, um, put others first. Humble yourself. And yes, he's talking about the discrepancies in the meal and how they were doing some of those things and it was forming cliques, but it's that idea that we put ourselves above others. When we know, we know that at the ground at the foot of the cross is level. It's there for everybody. God desires all, whoever we are. And then he says, I mean, you could eat at home. Don't don't set yourself up for the missing things here. I mean, you could do all those different things at home, but we need to catch the, the full thing here. Do what God wants. Eat at home if you're going to do that, but when you come together here, know what the main thing is. It's Jesus. It's what he has done for you. That's what brings forgiveness. That's what gives us peace and gives us hope. 
made me think of a story as we consider that, and we'll hit the last instructions here. But it was some years ago I read about this. It was a hot summer day in South Florida, and a little boy decided to go for a swim in the old swimming hole behind his house. He's in a hurry, and he's running out to dive into the cold water, and he leaves behind his shoes, socks, and shirt. You can imagine how a little boy does that, just dives right in to things. And uh, not realizing, though, as he flew into the water, that he swam, as he swam toward the middle of this little lake, there was an alligator swimming right toward him. His mom in the house looked out the window, and she saw the two as they were getting closer and closer together, in utter, utter fear, she runs toward the water. She yells to her son so loudly, as loud as she could. And hearing her voice, the little boy becomes alarmed and he makes the U-turn and starts to swim back towards his mom. It was too late, though, because just as he reached his mom, the alligator reached him. And from the dock, the mother grabbed her little boy by the arms just as the alligator snatched his legs. And they began an incredible tug of war between the two. A farmer happened to drive by and heard the screams. He raced from his truck, took aim, and shot the alligator. Good thing it was rural Florida, right? (laughs) And after weeks and weeks in the hospital, the little boy survived. His legs were extremely scarred by the vicious attack of the animal. And on his arms were deep scratches from where his mother's fingernails dug into his flesh in her effort to hang on to her son that she loved. And the newspaper reporter who interviewed the boy after the trauma asked him if he could show his scars. And so the boy lifted his pants legs. And then with obvious pride, he said to the reporter, but he said, look at my arms. I have great scars on my arms too. I have them because my mom wouldn't let go. And just like a mother who loves her child, God loves his people. Those he created. Those who have his image. God so loved the world. And the scars on the hands and the feet of Jesus remind us that God in his great love for us could not let us go. Communion is more than a reminder of that. It is a reminder. But it's that truth that Jesus paid for our sins. Paul says here in those last verses, he says, and when I come again, he says, I'll give you further instructions. (laughs) Further instructions are coming. And I don't know if you've ever seen this, and it's, it's a little acronym about the Bible because God's instructions are there for us. Um, the basic instructions before leaving earth. The Bible is basic instructions, but it's more than that. It's the instructions for life. It's the instructions for now. But it's instructions that prepare us and point us every page to Jesus Christ, to the head of the church. God didn't give us the scripture and scripture like this to scare us. 
Although it is meant to point out to them where to get that focus again. <laughs> to point out sin. We ask, I mean, it's the way we look at Scripture. We ask the kids in confirmation, what is the Bible when you put it together? What are the two things that make up the Bible? And we often think Old Testament, New Testament. And there's truth in that. There's both parts. But what it is, is every part of the Bible is law and gospel. <laughs> it's to see our need and who we are and to see what Christ has done to meet that need. And that is what prepares us. Are you prepared? And where are you and I looking? As this last song gets sung after I pray here, I love the song because it points out the fact that if we look within us, we're not going to see much good. If we look to the future, we don't know fully everything that can hit in the future. If we look back to the past, if we look around us, what do we see? Where should we look? Into the face of Jesus. That's where we'll find rest. Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you again, Lord, that it's not... It's not us, but you choose us to be a part of what you've done and to know you, to walk with you. And I thank you that through it all, whatever comes our way and whatever we do, the truth of who you are and what you have done won't change. Lord, help us in those things where we forget. Help us to look to the main aspects so that can permeate all of our lives. And Lord, I want to thank you again today for your dear sacraments, for the Lord's Supper that reminds us of those things, but more than that, that gives us and helps us grow, that strengthens us. Help us to examine ourselves and to look to you and you alone and know that you've done it for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Please do your work again. Work in each of our hearts, I pray. Amen.